these ideas being pushed by, you know, individual states like California. We're going to lead the U.S. in in terms of climate action. We're going to ban internal combustion engines, and we're going to ban the use of natural gas for home water heaters or commercial businesses and so on. And it's been very effective. But China, according to the latest numbers that just came out from Global Energy Monitor, last year, China was permitting and or beginning construction of one new coal plant per week, and their CO2 emissions continue rising. And so when you look at the major economies in in the world today, the US, Germany, Japan, France, and you graph them, and then you add in the wedges for China and India, it's very clear that the expansion of these emissions coming from China and India is swamping any change that's being made in the US, Germany, et cetera. So I'm not going to say, although other people have said this, that what we do in the US and in the West really doesn't matter anymore because of what's happening in China and India. But I think there's some validity to that. Welcome to The Fort Podcast. I'm Chris Powers. And on this show, I talk to some of the most fascinating minds in business and discuss important topics in the worlds of real estate, entrepreneurship, investing, and more. To learn more, visit thefortpod.com. That's thefortpod.com. Hey guys, thanks for joining me today. I have a really great guest, Robert Bryce. We just had a fascinating conversation. Robert is an author. He's a podcaster. He also is a film producer and he focuses on energy, innovation, and politics. Today, we talk about the global energy picture, what's going on. We go deep into what's happening with Russia and Ukraine, China, Europe, and most importantly, the USA and what we're doing about it. We talk about climate NGOs. We talk about uh, the deindustrialization of Europe. We talk about the electrical grid and nuclear power. We talk about the importance of fossil fuels and a lot more. So thanks for continuing to join me and enjoy the show. And this episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. At their core, Fort Capital is a privately owned real estate investment firm, but beyond that, they are committed to technology and a world-class culture, which leads to a very forward-thinking mentality. Do you want to stay in the know on all things Fort Capital? Be sure to follow Fort Capital on LinkedIn and sign up for the quarterly newsletter on www.fortcapitallp.com. Fort Capital's quarterly newsletter subscribers are the first to receive business and real estate insights, news, videos, podcasts, free resources, and more. Robert, thank you for joining me today. I am excited to talk about uh, your world. Well, thanks, Chris. Always happy to talk about energy power. These businesses are enormous, and there are a lot of misconceptions and a lot of bad policy out there. So happy to talk about it. Yeah, it's an important topic. Apparently, us humans need energy, especially to live the way we like to live these days. Isn't that correct? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we'll put that down as the understatement of of the (laughs) podcast thus far. But yeah, well, I mean, and and my most recent book is about electricity and what we're seeing now in the Inflation Reduction Act is this just neutron bomb of cash that has been poured onto the wind and solar sectors. And that's having knock-on effects on supply chains, transformers, you know, pole-mounted and pad-mounted, the grain-oriented steel market, copper, you know, even wooden poles and, and massive inflation in that sector due to this incredible intervention by the federal government into this sector. So, you know, add in the tumult in oil prices, natural gas prices were high, now they're at two, du- two bucks. I mean, you know, nuclear, I mean, Europe, there's so much going on. I'm I'm an old man, I'm 62 this year and We'll be 63 in July. And I don't know in my lifetime, Chris, when things have been more, I wouldn't say chaotic, but I would say uncertain. 
What do you think is driving a lot of the chaos and uncertainty? Obviously, it's a lot of forces all around the globe. But if you had to kind of pinpoint, because when you listen to some of your stuff and, and you read a lot of things, some of these answers seem obvious, but the leadership of the world sometimes tends to make different decisions. So if you had to kind of pinpoint why the chaos is happening now in 2023 with all the innovation we've had in the world, what's driving it? Well, sure. I think the, and I was in Japan for two weeks last month, or I'm sorry, late, late February and early March. And this, the, the meetings we had, I was with a group and we met with government in, uh, leaders, with, with industry leaders, and all of them were talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and energy security. So of, of the laundry list of things that are top of mind in terms of what has happened and what is causing all this tumult in the, in the, energy and power sectors, that would be probably the first one, right? Because it's not just nat gas supplies into Europe. It's not just crude supplies into the global market. It's uranium supplies and, and, and high assay, low enriched uranium supplies into the US reactor business. So into this SMR industry in the United States, a nascent business that needs this halo where the Russians are really the only supplier. And then you add in China's increasing grip on the and longtime control of key commodities and things like uh, neodymium iron boron magnets, which are used in EVs and wind turbines, as well as rare earth elements. And all of these things together, along with the increasing strains between the US and Russia, US and China. And then you add on underinvestment in the upstream oil and gas sector in the US and these wildly fluctuating prices. And then now this Inflation Reduction Act, which is the misnomer of all time. And you got uh, just a lot of chaotic pieces and a lot of competing interests, both geopolitically and politically here in the U.S., and fractures even within the uh, big fractures in the U.S. between various states over energy policy. So natural gas bans in California, bans on natural gas bans in Texas. So fractures all across the world, all around the world, and even inside the, the U.S. and at the state level and at the county and city level. And we can talk about that with regard to land use conflicts over siting of renewables. Let's start with just Japan. Your nephew, Joey, sent in his one question was, you were just in Japan and maybe let's start with how does the U.S. align with Japan? How do we not align with them? What What is Japan doing that we're not doing? Like, how would we compare Japan to America right now as it as it goes to energy policy? Sure. Well, Japan, of course, is a key ally for the U.S. and our strongest one, arguably, in Asia. You could put South Korea maybe in that same same boat, but the South Koreans and the and the Japanese don't like each other. The you know the Japanese don't have many friends in that neighborhood. Let's be clear. And that was pointed out to my by my friend Kosuke Furutachi, who works for Nippon Oil. And he said, "Look, we're in a bad neighborhood. We got the Russians here, we got the Chinese here, we got the North Koreans just over there. You know, this is a bad neighborhood." And so their first concern is energy security. And if we're going to contrast Japan with the U.S., you know, we are blessed with incredible geography and incredible geology. So we have oil and gas in surplus, frankly, right? You know, we're, I, don't, I didn't check the price of nat gas today at Henry Hub, but it's a $2 and change. Well, the JKM marker for LNG into the Asian market, again, I haven't checked that today, but it's probably six times that or so, right? 12 to $14 and has been for a long time. So the price of energy there in Japan is, is far higher than it is here in the US. So that is one of the issues. But of course, you know, the thing that, that is the, the, the big issue in Japan now 
is the aftermath and dealing with the aftermath of the, the accident at Fukushima Daiichi. And I was very fortunate. I went to Japan with a group called Washington Policy and Analysis, and we went to Fukushima Daiichi. In fact, I was there, oh, right about uh, five weeks ago. And it was a sobering experience, Chris. I mean, it really was to go and see that. I'm adamantly pro-nuclear, have been for a long time, but the cleanup there will take decades and cost tens of billions of dollars. And further, that you know, now Japan is restarting some of its reactors. They've restarted 10. They want to restart more. And Japan is looking, and the thing that was really interesting, the contra contrast between Japan and the US, they are reopening their reactors and they're betting long-term on nuclear. They are integrating their entire fuel supply chain. They have high-level disposal, low-level disposal. They're doing enrichment. They want to do reprocessing. All of this because of this, you know, very strong unity in Japan about the Japanese people in their country and that they're going to cooperate and move forward. It's and that cooperation is hard to find here in the U.S. We're very divided in, in terms of our politics, both nationally and regionally. So those were my, my, my key takeaways. But that Japan, the other one I think that's clear as well is that Japan, despite being the home of the Kyoto Protocol, they are not taking any significant action on climate change. They're saying a lot of words that are, you know, they're, you know, they're saying, oh, oh yeah, we're really taking this seriously and we're net zero, blah, blah, blah. The reality is they're building coal and gas-fired power plants. In fact, TEPCO, which owns Fukushima Daiichi, is building a 1.3 gigawatt ultra-supercritical coal plant in the middle of Tokyo. So this is energy realism in Japan today. And something I wrote about in my Substack, which robertbrice.substack.com, that is, I think is, you know, pointing out, and I wrote it when I was in Japan, that the title was Japan no Kyoto. For all of the talk about climate change, Japan is choosing energy security first, and that, uh, and well, they should. Not just in Japan, but the term net zero, it seems like in this energy environment, a lot of countries around the world that were maybe focused on net zero have pivoted and are opening up plants that they weren't originally planning to ever open up again. It didn't happen. It didn't have to take very long for that to happen. Is that kind of happening across the globe where you're going to see more people building coal plants and things that would be quote unquote dirty in order to maintain, you know, energy stability? Sure. Well, and the two countries that come to mind are Pakistan and Germany. You know, we saw that massive run up in LNG prices, global LNG prices, and particularly the JKM marker. That's the Asian Asian marker, the Asian equivalent of LNG for the U.S. We have Henry Hub as a basis marker, or, or West Texas Intermediate priced at Cushing, Oklahoma, or in in Hollander, it's the TTF for the European continent. We saw LNG prices soar, you know, to some what three or four x what they are now. Well, they've dropped back down, but the, that fluctuation in price led the Pakistani government to say, okay, we're out. We are not going to be buying any more LNG. We're going to build coal-fired power plants. And that's what they're doing. They've stood, they announced something like four gigawatts of new coal-fired power plants. And the Pakistani economy, by the way, is in total shambles today. There are food shortages. You know, they're, they're, they don't have enough cash. The government is running out of money. Pakistan is on the verge of, of, of meltdown. Okay, well, so that's one example in Asia, but then let's pivot to Europe and look at Germany, which is the home of the energy vendor. All this talk about, oh, we're going to lead the world in climate change. What are they doing? They're burning lignite. I mean, <laughs> last year, one of the, the, you know, there was the, these images, the, one of the, uh, forgot the name of the lignite mine, they're expanding the lignite mine to buy, burn more lignite, which is the most carbon intensive way to produce power. There is no more carbon intensive method of producing electricity than burning lignite. 
and they're taking, they took down a wind project to make way for expansion of the coal plant. <laughs> that's, that's energy realism in a nutshell in Germany, which tells you pretty much all you need to know. And is that publicly distributed information or is that something that someone that's as deep into it as you would know, or do the, the folks of Germany or the folks of Europe actually know that's going on? Oh, well, I think it's, you know, Germany's move back to coal is pretty well known. I wrote about the wind project being taken down in, in Forbes. Now I'm, I'm almost exclusively on Substack now. I don't write, I haven't been writing for Forbes lately, but, you know, I reported on it. Other people reported on it. But, you know, the other part that's critical here to understand is that all, you know, these markets are interconnected globally. And so Germany loaded up on LNG over the past few months and they, they you know, they refilled their gas storage but as the Germans bid up the price of LNG, what did they do? They outbid countries like Pakistan and Bangladesh. And so the inner, you know, Germany's able to afford higher energy prices and they paid it, right? And they built an LNG receiving terminal in a record like three months or something, four months, because they knew they needed to have gas to make sure they had enough supply. And so they outbid everybody else. Now the market has cooled down since then, but they essentially just pushed other players out of the market and outbid them. So what we're seeing, you know, one of the big developments and changes in the global energy markets over the past, you know, I would even say months, it's really been the last two or three years, is the globalization of natural gas. And now tr the trade in global natural gas in the U.S. is now, you know, for the biggest exporter, but we will, will be the biggest exporter by the end of 2025. We'll be exporting 20 billion cubic feet a day of gas from the U.S. It's a big number. Well, so how does a how does countries like Pakistan or Bangladesh how do they get out of this? What's the what's the pathway to success? Is there one? Boy, that's a good question, Chris. You know this. How do you solve poverty? You know they need more energy, but they have to buy that energy in the global marketplace, right? That's one of the problems with Bangladesh, Pakistan. They're relatively resource poor. The same is definitely true of Japan. Japan imports essentially everything, all of their energy resources. They produce a very modest amount of coal and, and oil and gas, but those countries don't have the resources that the Japanese do. They don't have the borrowing capacity. They and so, you know, how do those countries then? buy enough energy in the global marketplace to satisfy demand in a country where, you know, poverty is endemic. This is a real problem. And it's one that I, in fact, I was talking to a friend of mine, Steve Brick, about this yesterday, about you can solve some of this at local levels with, with small grids or sub-national electric grids is one way, because then you can get a group of people that can, that are responsible and will pay for their electricity and so on. But it, it, that kind of progress is slow and it takes decades, not years. All right, let's talk about Russia for just a like I'm going to ask you a big loaded question and this one's for me but as we sit today they're in a war but you know they're talking to China and they're talking to other countries how does Russia what is their true role in the globe on energy where is their energy going I, I you know some people might think oh well we're at war nobody's buying their energy some people would say Americans still buy their energy. You just don't know it. But if you had to kind of lay out a framework for how do their resources impact the globe, even today during a war, who's taking their resources? What resources are coming? What deals are being made? What's really happening behind the scenes? Sure. Well, this is a really good, good question and a really interesting one. And you mentioned oil and gas, but let's start with nuclear energy. 
So Ross Adam is the flagship, is the the state champion for nuclear energy in in Russia. This is the the state owned or state controlled enterprise. Some people think that Putin, in fact, has a big hand in Ross Adam, and that may well be. I can't prove that, but that Ross Adam has contracts with countries all over the world to build and operate nuclear power plants and provide the fuel and the financing. So now, despite the war, many of those contracts, I think Turkey is one of them. Remember, the Bushehr reactor in Iran was being built by Ross Adam, right? So the, the Iranians, they need, they're desperately short of electricity. They need more power. Ross Adam was the one that was building the Bushehr reactor. I don't know, the re, you know what the status is on that now. But there is a, you know, there's an incredible demand for electricity globally and, the, and, the, and for low carbon energy and for cheap, abundant, reliable baseload power. So Ross Adam... Despite the war, these contracts that they that Ross Adam has made with various countries around the world, those projects are still going forward. Now, with regard to oil and gas, it's a little bit different. And you know, you heard, I'm sure it was the I think it was the G7. They tried to impose price caps on Russian oil. Well, price caps never work, never have, never will. And the you know there was an effort to try and restrain Russia's income from oil. Well, okay, you can try that, or you can prohibit the flow of Russian oil into Europe. But what has happened? Well. That Russian crude has been going to India, where it's being turned into middle distal, it's being refined, and then, or, then either being used in India or being re-exported. So it is still very possible that Russian crude is being turned into diesel fuel that's somehow finding its way into the U.S. market. Or if it's not finding its way into the U.S. market, it's finding its way into other markets, and then the diesel from those markets is coming to the U.S., so in a, mar in a global environment, a global economy such as we have now, particularly in oil, which is arguably the most fungible traded global commodity, this idea that we're going to shut off Russian oil from the rest of the global market is just a fantasy. One of the reports is that the Russians were selling crude to the Saudis. The Saudis were burning Russian crude in their power plants and then exporting their own Saudi oil onto the world market. So, you know, some kind of hopscotch there or the you know, this will we'll replace it with this one. And then it's, you know, like somehow it's, we've just done the cleansing trade here or something. But the reality is those molecules are going to find their way into the market. Now, gas is a bit of a different story because Nord Stream has been blown up and that gas, those gas flows have stopped and largely, not completely. But the, you know, the, but the longer term questions are if that, if that Russian crude in particular goes off of the market and stays off because Western companies, ExxonMobil, Halliburton, Schlumberger, are not going to operate in Russia anymore. The Russians needed Western technology, Western expertise, Western equipment. Then Russian crude output starts to fall over time. And who steps in? Well, OPEC. So, you know, we can argue about the merits of the Russia and the efforts to isolate Russia and the, the push to put NATO into, you know, add Ukraine to NATO, which I think was a bad idea. But the result is that the efforts to isolate Russia are having consequences in multiple commodity markets around the world. And we've just talked about energy commodities. We can talk about nickel. We can talk about other things as well, particularly in metals, critical strategic metals and minerals. It's a different story there, but different, but only in you know, the types of commodities that are being traded. So you know, Russia is a big country and has been a huge natural resource exporter. And so this conflict is underscoring the both the global nature of these commodity markets and also Russia's in key role in them. Does America buy natural resources from Russia today? Oh, well, we have. And, and as I said, this is one of the something like 20% of the fuel for nuclear reactors in the United States has been coming from Russia. 
and now uh, Senator Barrasso and some other senators uh, voted recent or introduced a bill that would prohibit the import of any Russian fuel into the U.S. So again, another area where these resources that some of them being refined and, and processed and and as finished goods and others not, but they are finding their way, if not into the U.S., into other countries in the global in the global economy. So is it kind of fair to say there's a conundrum where? We're buying some natural resources from Russia, so we're giving them money to, you can say, quote unquote, fight the war, but we're also giving Ukraine money to fight the war. We're kind of funding both sides of it. Is that fair? That's, that's a fair assessment. If you had to say on a scale of one to 10, how dependent is uh, Europe on Russia's resources? And is there any any place in the future where the, it could become less dependent or they pretty much made their bed for a while? Well, let me see, one to 10. Well, you know, I guess I'll, I'll just say it was Germany, I would say, you know, in terms of dependence on Russia, it was eight, you know, seven or eight, because all, you know, Russia tied itself to, uh, Germany tied itself to Russian gas, particularly under Angela Merkel. And now that has pivoted. And so it's gone from eight, maybe we'll just look at Germany alone from eight to maybe, I don't know, two, three. I mean, these are kind of wild, wild guess numbers, but you know, I think one of the other things that's clear and that one of the knock-on effects, Chris, is that because of the efforts to shut off Russian gas, there has been a huge surge in interest in nuclear power in Europe. So you see countries like Romania, Poland, Britain in particular, Germany as well, re either restarting their reactors. This is what one of the things in Belgium, they extended the life of their reactors. France now saying they're going to, to double down on nuclear just the other day. The French Congress voted on a proposal put forward by Macron to fund was it six new nuclear reactors, $50 billion, something like this? So this, this cutoff of Russian gas has been a real catalyst for new interest and investment in nuclear across Europe. Okay. My last question on what's Russia and China's relationship? Well, the old adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend holds here, right? So the U.S. has worked very hard to isolate the Russians. Well, they have then gotten closer to the Chinese. And they already have the Siberia pipeline was in the great Siberia. What is the name of that pipeline? But, you know, they already, you, a lot of Russian gas is already flowing into China, but Xi and Putin just met a few weeks ago. And so China clearly sees the conflict in Ukraine. And, you know, I think they're trying to, you know, straddle the fence here to some degree, but I think it's only Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the U.S. and the G7 and Europe's efforts to isolate Russia have only pushed Russia closer to China. Does Russia Ukraine end anytime soon, or is this going to be a long, ongoing slog? Ooh, gosh, you know that's a, you know that's a sixty-four dollar question. <laughs> you know how much pain can both sides endure? I can't hazard a guess there, Chris. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm no no Russia expert. You know, Peter Zion has some interesting ideas about this. About you know this, the next month or two is going to be critical because both sides are going to launch offensives and try and break the other side, but. You know, I think Putin doesn't have a way out here, right? You know, Putin is in a, he's said, this is our land. We're going to denazify Ukraine, right? He's staked his re reputation and his future on this war. So he doesn't have any kind of graceful way out. He started it. So a friend of mine who was used to work in the British foreign office, talked to him. He's actually my brother-in-law. He said, Putin either gets deposed or he gets assassinated, right? There's no, there's no easy exit for him here. So, you know, the war is going badly. If it continues to go badly, you know, more and more casualties, more unrest at home, the economy gets worse, then, you know, and this is the part that's, that's scary, Chris, is desperate men do desperate things.
So all this goes badly. What does Putin then take a next step and go with atomic weapons or biological weapons or do something that really makes things ugly in a hurry? That that's my concern. What are they really fighting over? If you if you just kind of don't know much, you're thinking, well, Russia said this was our land to begin with and we want it back. That seems to me to be a little childish. There has to be some deeper levels to this. Like, what is Russia really trying to win here? What do they gain if for some reason they do win? What are they really after? Well, that's a really good question. Again, I'm not, uh, I'm no expert on Russia, but uh, Konstantin Kissin, his, uh, he's on Substack as well. He's done some really interesting writing about the motivations. And he, and he cites the work of a guy named Alexander Dugan, um, and that Dugan is influential in the, in the Kremlin, and particularly with Putin, about... Russia's role as an imperial power, that this is their destiny, that they are supposed to be expansionists. This is who they are, that this is part of their identity. Now, does that resonate with ordinary Russians? I I can't say. You know, I've never been to Russia, not really interested in going. You know, it's a complex history that involves a lot of ideas about Russian nationalism, Russian, their self-image, and that Putin has helped sell that with the backing of the Russian Orthodox Church. So I won't pretend to be the expert on Russia here, but this is a, going to be a long and bitter war. And, you know, go back to the commodities. I've talked about transformer supplies, and I wrote about it in my Substack the other day. The Russian military has had an ongoing effort to destroy Ukraine's electric grid. Well, all of that stuff, the transformers, the poles, the wires, all this stuff's going to have to be replaced. Those products are going to have to be de- developed and, and manufactured globally and to re-electrify Ukraine if and when the war ends. Another example of how these supply chains are interconnected and, and going to result in even greater demand for transformers that are manufactured in the U.S., which are already in some cases have lead times of one to two years. Okay, just a clarifying question. You mentioned Ross Adam. Is that like a big nuclear contractor? Is that a company? Is Can you explain who Ross Adam is? Imagine General Electric was owned by the United States government. So that would be my, you know, I've never thought of it that way, but that would be you know, GE has built, it builds nuclear reactors. They build their big manufacturer, but Ross Adam is the state champion, the state-owned nuclear energy company in Russia. And it's a very big company, arguably the, maybe the single biggest nuclear energy company in the world. I, you know, I wouldn't stake my reputation on that, but they own and operate all the nuclear plants in Russia. I don't know if they own all the upstream on the, in terms of the uranium production. I think that's actually a different company, but Ross Adam is the state champion. They build and finance nuclear power plants in other countries around the world as well. So it's a very big and very influential company, particularly inside the Kremlin. Is it fair to say we'll kind of move it to nuclear now? Is nuclear gaining popularity? Is is what happened at Fukushima, I think I said that right, the reason why more people are not advocating for nuclear? It seems so obvious. It's It creates cheap, abundant energy what is holding it back or is it now going to start really growing into the world? Where do we stand with nuclear? How long do we have today, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> is it just an hour? Yeah. Is it just we can go hour? a little longer. <laughs> well, look, I'm adamantly pro-nuclear and have been for you know more than a decade. My thesis is natural gas to nuclear, end to end. If we're serious about decarbonization, or even if we're not, the way forward to cheap, abundant, reliable energy and power is natural gas and nuclear. Both are the the resources are are enormous. The technologies are well developed and widespread, and they're scalable. You know that we have more natural gas globally than we can say grace over, as my father used to say. 
nuclear technologies well-developed were developing smaller, faster, cheaper reactors. But there are many hurdles in front of us. And we talked about Japan earlier, and it was a great opportunity for me to go to Japan. But it also, when I came back, I was much more sober about nuclear energy. And, you know, it's easy to say, well, I'm pro-nuclear, and I am. But what are the key hurdles that are facing us right now? If we just look at the US, I think there are three. Well, first is the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and the regulatory regime around nuclear power, that the NRC is an independent agency and it has been, you know, frankly, in many cases, the anti-nuclear regulatory commission. They've done some, they've made some moves that are, I think, terrible. Now, are they getting religion and are they mobilizing and are, is there a lot of pressure on the agency to do better and approve new reactor designs and do it more quickly? Yes, there is. But let's look at New Scale Power, which is the one of the leading companies now that has had their reactor design approved by the, by the NRC. It took New Scale six years and $500 million to get their reactor design approved by the NRC. I mean, there just aren't many companies that can, you know, can sit around and wait that long, right? Because, you know, capital wants a return on capital. And so New Scale is the lead, one of the lead horses here, but the, that track record says, damn, you know, you got to be patient and you're going to, you know, have to wait a decade or so to, you know, if you're between the time you propose it and the time you might be able to start building it. Okay. So three things, NRC fuel and cheap gas. Those are the key hurdles in the US. Okay. So I've talked about the NRC, which we could talk about more. The other is the fuel availability, which I've touched on before, which that supply chain goes through Russia and the US doesn't have, I mean, we have some companies, including Centris and Urenco that can enrich uranium and then get further downstream and provide then those finished fuel packages that go into new nuclear reactors. But we don't have the capability, at least not yet, to produce HALU, high assay, low enriched uranium, which is about 20% enriched uranium that a lot of these new small modular reactors need. So well, where are we going to get that? Well, no one really knows. Oh, well, let's build some plants. Okay, so you build a plant. Well, how many years between now and then? And then are you going to have companies say, oh, we believe the fuel will be available, so we're going to start building our plant now, our new reactor? There's a lot of risk inherent in those assumptions, whether you get the project approved by the NRC. And then if you do, is there going to be fuel to run it? And then the other one here in the US, and this is really one that is key to nuclear development in the US, is that, you know, I heard a guy, a nuclear industry guy years ago, he said, what price do you need natural gas to be for new nuclear to be appropriate or for it to be investable in the US? He said, eight bucks. And he said, we need another eight bucks on top of that in carbon taxes or something else. So he's saying $16 per million BTUs. You know, again, I haven't checked the, the price in Henry Hub today. It's what $2 and change. So if I'm in the utility business and I'm looking at building something new and I want to deploy capital, well, what would I do? Well, the first thing I do would probably be build wind and solar because the subsidies are so enormous. I mean, there's hundreds of billions of dollars that are the gov federal government, including through the Inflation Reduction Act, have provided to wind and solar developers. Okay, well, that would be the first choice because the, the gravy train at the federal level is amazing. And then the other would be natural gas because there's very little technology or political risk. And the fuel is, it's not free, but $2 per million BTUs is pretty dang cheap. So, those are the, the you know, again, the, we could talk about nuclear for a long time, and I'm passionate about nuclear, very interested in all aspects of it, but it still faces a lot of hurdles in the U.S. And even if we get a few reactors deployed, say 30, 50, 100 megawatts, okay, great. Our electric grid in the U.S., Chris, is 1.2 terawatts. That's 1,200 million, million watts. 
So it's just enormous. The scale of the, the electric grid in the United States is just incredible. So, okay. So you might've answered it. Maybe I'm just asking a dumb question, but why would the U.S. government not put hundreds of billions of dollars behind nuclear then and subsidize it if they're going to do it for solar and wind? Let me correct my math. I said 1,200 million. It's 1.2 million million watts. That's, a one, tri <laughs> yeah. that's one terawatt, one trillion watts. Okay, so well, you're right. You know, so if we need nuclear, and we do, regardless, I think of whether you think whatever you think about climate change. In my view, you know, you don't have to believe in climate change to be pro-nuclear. But you know, the, we've had this idea in the U.S. about about free markets, and and this doesn't necessarily apply to electricity because I don't electricity is really not a commodity; it's a service. But you know, Congress has been reluctant to just put the thumb on the scale for nuclear, and part of that is the par the partisan divide. Democrats are reflexively anti-nuclear and have been for decades. And you have these big NGOs. I don't call them environmental groups because I don't think they're environmental groups. They're pressure groups, these climate activist groups. They have budgets of hundreds of millions of dollars and they are reflexively anti-nuclear. And I will name them. The Natural Resources Defense Council, the Sierra Club, Rocky Mountain Institute, Climate Imperative. You know, these are some of the that last one I mentioned, I, I wrote about in, sub, in Substack. The, the, these are some of the billionaires behind the gas bans. These are new outfits that are pushing bans on natural gas. They're anti-nuclear and they have budgets of hundreds of millions of dollars per year. They're very influential in Washington. They're very influential in the Democratic Party. Republicans are pro-nuclear, but they don't want to put a lot of money behind it. So one of the reasons why, to answer your question directly, hasn't Congress just said, okay, we're going to give a, you know, a boatload of money and we're going to create the American Ross Adam to compete with the Russians is that this is, you know, Congress doesn't see that as their role. And also, you know, add in the fact that the U.S. electric sector is very diffused. We have over 3,000 electricity providers in America. So it's a very fractured business and looking for support in a, in a very fractured political environment. It's a heavy lift. Okay, let's what, define what's a climate NGO. Well, a climate NGO, Sierra Club is the obvious one. They have a budget of 180 some odd million dollars a year. Natural Resources Defense Council budgets of over 200 million dollars a year. Millions of, of members across the United States. Rocky Mountain Institute founded by Amory Lovins, another big NGO. This one's a, one of the few that's based not in, based on the coasts. It's based in Colorado. Budget of over 100 million dollars a year. These are very influential outfits and the media they have a lot of allies in the media. And in some cases, they create their own media outlets. Rocky Mountain Institute created their own publication called Canary Media. So, you know, they, they have, have enormous amount of influence, both in politics, but also in the media. As I like to say, the, you know, the renewable crowd right now, they have the money, the media and the momentum. And I think that's clearly true. Now, is there a lot of momentum building behind nuclear? Yes. But it's going to take a long time for nuclear to make a dent in the overall size of the U.S. electric grid. Why do you think all these billionaires are so anti-energy when if you just say, well, let's just look at your actions. I, I hear your words, but I'm looking at your actions. Huge houses all over the world, yachts. I think I read something that you had posted said that Bloomberg uses 670 times more jet fuel a year than the average U.S. driver, yet they're they're so pro kind of anti oil and gas or, or energy. What, what's what's driving that motive for them to want to take that stance when their actions aren't lining up? 
Well, you know, they, these are climate indulgences. I think, you know, I think that Martin Luther would recognize what's going on here. Oh, well, yeah, I fly in my private jet and Bloomberg has something like a dozen houses. He's worth something like Michael Bloomberg, former mayor of New York, has some worth something like $50 billion. He has a dozen houses. He has a fleet of jets. And I used data on that and I, I published a piece on Substack called Above It All. Yeah, I mean, these are uh, uh, Lorraine Powell Jobs, Steve Jobs' widow. She flies around the world in a, in a Gulfstream G50 that burns 500 gallons of jet fuel an hour. In an hour, her jet burns almost as much fuel, liquid hydrocarbons, as the average American uses in gasoline in a year. So, you know, they're funding these, these climate NGOs as, I think, a way to, you know, kind of their get out of jail, free card, feel better about myself, kind of give, you know, my, my donation. Well, you know, I'm flying in my jet, but I deserve it. I'm on my yacht, but I deserve it. So I'm going to give some money to these people because they're going to impose policies that force the little people to use less energy. I mean, they, I don't think they think about it that way, but I think there is some psychology here that, you know, that, that was at work when Martin Luther tacked his grievances on the, the door of the church back in, what was it, the 1500s? You know, this is, there's a very similar kind of idea here. Martin Luther would recognize carbon credits. These are, these are carbon indulgences. Are carbon credits a sham? Oh, hell yes. <laughs> oh, yes, they are. Because when you listen to like, there was a recent Bill Gates interview and, and he was put on the spot and it was very awkward. But his answers were basically, well, I'm I'm offsetting all my carbon footprint with all these carbon credits. If he was telling the truth, what does he actually think he's doing? But but what are carbon credits and why are they a sham? Well, there's it's interesting you bring that up because this is an old story. And again, you know, Martin Luther would recognize these because it, that was one of the reasons for the Reformation. The Catholic Church was selling indulgences, right? You could go and sin and you know, cheat on your wife or do whatever debauchery you wanted. But as long as you gave the church some money, that sin was, you know, you were, you were absolved of that sin. And that was how a lot of, a lot of churches got built was with that kind of money. The main route for this is by these companies are claiming that they're selling carbon credits to UPS or United Airlines or something, and they're planting trees. Well, there have been a number of studies in, uh, just in the last few months, the Washington Post has reported on it, Bloomberg News has reported on it, that a lot of these firms that claim to be counting, you know, planting trees, that they're way over counting what they might be sequestering in terms of, of carbon. And what's interesting about this, since I brought up the Catholic Church, it was in the early 2000s where some guy, he was a shyster, went to the Vatican and said, you know, we're going to plant the Vatican forest. And he had this parcel of land in Hungary that he was going to claim that he was going to plant all these trees on, and it was going to allow the Vatican to be carbon zero or net zero or carbon neutral. It turns out he never planted a single tree. <laughs> the whole thing was a scam. <laughs> it was like, you know, this is, but this story has played out yet again with these other bigger outfits, bigger companies that are claiming that, you know, they're doing big business. But like I said, I think it was in February, the Washington Post reported on some of the latest thing that they, they've overstated their carbon benefits by 30 or 40%. And to sequester all the carbon being emitted, you'd need to cover two or three earths with the amount of forest we're talking about. So it's an accounting gimmick that is being used by a lot of big corporations. And the same with re renewable energy credits, RECs, that you know they're, they're trying to shift their energy consumption and look greener than they are. It's a lot of hocus pocus. Okay. Let's talk about China for just a little bit. 
on one end, they control a lot of the natural resources that uh, are going to need to be used to build more electric vehicles and things of that nature. But they're also the largest developer of coal plants in the world. Is this another kind of do as I say, not as I do? Or what's China's stance on, on all of this? And how are they emerging as a, as a leader in the world of energy? Well, let's start with that last part first, because that's the one that to me is so interesting and I think is the counter indicator for a lot of this policy in the U.S., This I, these ideas being pushed by you know, individual states like California. We're going to lead the U.S. In, in terms of climate action. We're going to ban internal combustion engines and we're going to ban the use of natural gas for home water heaters or commercial businesses and so on. And it's been very effective. But China, according to the latest numbers that just came out from Global Energy Monitor, last year, China was permitting and or beginning construction of one new coal plant per week, roughly. Now, I thought that was old news. I thought that was a few years ago. You know, we heard that, you know, I you know five, six, seven, eight years ago that China was building all this new coal fired capacity. They are. In fact, they are. And their CO2 emissions continue rising. And so when you look at, and I've graphed it, I do a lot of public speaking, but creating a PowerPoint slide in which you look at the major economies in, in the world today, the US, Germany, Japan, France, and you graph them, and then you add in the wedges for China and India, it's very clear that the expansion of these emissions coming from China and India is swamping any change that's being made in the US, Germany, et cetera. So, I'm not going to say, although pe other people have said this, that what we do in the US and in the West really doesn't matter anymore because of what's happening in China and India. But I think there's some validity to that. You know, the, there's one rule, Chris, that I, and I borrow this term from my friend Roger Pilkey Jr. He calls it the iron law of climate, which says when, when forced to choose between economic growth and action on climate, policymakers will choose economic growth every time. I have a different take on that. I call it the iron law of electricity, which is people will do whatever they have to do to get the electricity they need. And that's what we're seeing. So the this overwhelming majority of the growth in coal demand, which grew again by about 1% last year, according to the IEA, a lot of that is happening. Yes, China's, China is growing in terms of coal consumption, but it's also Vietnam, India, other developing countries in, in Southern Asia where they're saying, we're going to burn the fuel, and now Pakistan, we're going to burn the fuel that we can afford that's available, that's, you know, geographically, and there are no OPEC-like entities that control it. They're going to continue burning coal. That is the reality. You kind of answered the question, but I'll just ask it again, maybe a different way. But let's just say America, we, you know, everybody drove an electric vehicle. We had no more gas stoves. We, 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 and all 400 million people here, we somehow got everybody to do it. But the rest of the world kept moving on the way they've been moving on right now. Would it even matter in the, because we all live in one globe? It's not like America has the, the climate above itself. We all are benefiting or we're all part of one globe. If all these things that America keeps preaching actually happened and we got 100% adoption, but China kept building their coal plants, the rest of the world kept doing it, is it virtually like we're not putting a dent in the universe? I, I wouldn't say it has no value, but it's next to no value, I would say. I, you know, As I said before, I, 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 ultimately, I think what's happening now in the US, we've reduced our CO2 emissions on a nominal basis more than any other country in the world over the past 10 to 15 years largely because of the move away from coal and toward natural gas. 
But still, that those those savings have been swamped by the growth in the developing countries, and they will continue to be swamped by the growth of economies in the developing world. And why is that? Because energy poverty, Chris, around the world is rampant. And I, I talk about it in my latest book, A Question of Power. There are more than 3 billion people in the world today who live in countries where per capita electricity use is less than what's used by an average American refrigerator. So I'll repeat that. So the 3 billion people living in countries where per capita consumption on average is less than a thousand kilowatt hours per capita per year. So particularly in, in Africa, you have hundreds of millions of people living in dire energy poverty, and they will do whatever they have to do to get out of it. They don't want to burn cow dung and wheat straw and wood anymore. They want to use butane. They want lights. They want what we take for granted. So it's a global issue. It's going to take global cooperation, but I don't, you know, what I see is a lot of rhetoric. And what I, what I see in the numbers is the CO2 emissions continue to rise as they did again last year per the IEA. And so it's, I don't think it's a bad pursuit and a, and a bad ambition for folks in the United States to want to lower their carbon footprint. But at the same time that, you know, they're, they're doing that. And then if they're trying to project that on the rest of the world, whether they know it or not, they're also saying, we're also cool with 3 billion people staying virtually energy poverty as we continue to push more expensive forms of electricity in, in the pursuit of decarbonization. Yeah, I'll, I'll say it a little bit different in, in that I think who gets hurt here, you know, so we can talk about what are the merits, right? And what is the motivation for the people that are funding these anti-hydrocarbon efforts, right? Like Michael Bloomberg or John Doerr, who's also at Climate Imperative or Lorene Powell Jobs or Tom Steyer. Well, okay, we can talk about their ambitions or their motivations. But what about the people who are working class or, or who are living in poverty in the United States? Nearly, when I look at all these, you know, these climate regulations, nearly all of them are regressive. All of them. You look at, you know, efforts to ban natural gas in the home. Well, natural gas is the last form of in-home affordable energy. The DOE's own numbers say that it costs roughly three times more to heat your home with electricity than it does with natural gas. So who gets hurt here? And I think it's clear, you know, I, I, I live in Austin and I, you know, I have some friends of mine, they're hardworking folks. You know, they, he, this guy, you know, Nico Lopez is a friend of mine. He's, he does landscaping. He's never going to drive a Tesla. And yet if he lived in California in a few years, he won't be able to buy an internal combustion engine vehicle. Well, what does that do for him? Nothing. What you know, how is he going to haul a trailer? You know, there's a very, urban centric focus here in the US. I did some numbers the other day, something like 60% of the electric vehicles sold in America are sold in just five states and California, Texas, Florida, New York. But those states only account for about 35% of the population. So all oh, this push for EVs, it does nothing for the people who live in South Dakota or West Virginia or North Dakota or Wyoming. I go to those states frequently. I talk to a lot of electric co-ops. I see a lot of F-150s and Rams and Silverados. I don't see any Teslas. Are you kidding me? You know, these are these are rural states and cold country and they're not going to buy an electric vehicle. Are you kidding? And yet because of the tax policy, they're forced to effectively subsidize EVs in places like California, which accounts by itself for nearly 40% of all the EVs sold in America. So there are discrepancies here and I think real ones between the rich and the poor, but also regional variations in terms of, well, who's getting the money and why? And these issues are not getting the kind of attention they should. Somebody told me the other day, 
people in power do not get together and think of ways to make themselves less powerful. They do quite the opposite. And so we could make the argument that, you know, there you take some of these billionaires that are saying all the right things, but you look at their actions. Could you take it a, la- a layer deeper and say by supporting these things, because you have to think, okay, well, what is the benefit of all this? And if the real answer is, well, maybe one day we'll live in this utopian decarbonated world, that could be one thing. Or could it be that if you can control energy, you have more control over the population? Well, you know, I think about that and what are the motivations at work here? And to your point about politicians, right? It's that old line, no no politician ever got elected by saying things are going to be just fine, right? (laughs) They get elected by saying, you elect that other guy or that other gal, things are going to go straight to hell in a handbasket. I'm going to save you from them, right? So the crisis is always at hand and that there is no doubt that you politicians always run on the f- this idea of fear of that other guy being worse, right, than I am. And so I'm going to protect you and look out for your interests. But I think that, you know, the motivation, what is the motivation for these, you know, the, I think many of these people who are pushing these policies, they are well-meaning. But I think that it, more fundamentally, I mean, you know, let's look at where they get in a paycheck, right? So, you know, a lot of these jobs in these NGOs, these climate action groups, they pay pretty well. And there are a lot of them and the money is secure. So you get a paycheck. But I think there's also a religious aspect here that is important to touch on, Chris, which is, you know, ordinary church going in America is way down. Belief in political uh, religious affiliations among voters, way down. Well, people need to believe something, right? That we have, as Jonathan Haidt, I think, put it, there's a, we have a God-shaped hole in our hearts. We, we, we are believers. We need to believe something. And so what I think is part of what is behind all of this climate-ism is a religious belief in that we humans have sinned against earth and we need to repent. And so when you you look at these ideas around carbon credits, you look at these ideas about, you know, the despoliation of the church, of the of the earth just as Adam had had, had fouled up in the garden and they had to a lot of this rhymes with this idea, we're going to go back. We're going to go back to the garden. We're going to use less, eat less. We're going to rely on natural energy, solar and wind. We're not going to use that unnatural nuclear. We're not going to do those things. Instead, we're going to redeem ourselves in the eyes of the earth, right? So these kinds of these kinds of images and these kind of, this kind of rhetoric is very, there's a lot of religious overlap at work here that I think is a fundamental driver of a lot of this policy and belief, both among the politicians and among large segments of the voting population, particularly younger people, a lot of them have been inculcated in schools in this kind of belief system. Okay. On that note, <laughs> that, that's kind of stunned stun you there for a second. No, I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense. It is a it's a religion, you know, again, as, as I continue to, to learn more about it, it, it seems like the numbers don't really add up behind it, but I guess it is something to believe in. You said something about Europe and you said today's fertilizer shutdowns are tomorrow's shortages and famine. Well, let's take the first part of that. What is creating the fertilizer shutdowns? Who's, who's behind this? Why would that be a good idea? You don't want to lose food, I don't think. Sure. Well, that was a piece that I wrote last summer when you had natural gas prices in Europe and it, it, for a brief point hit about $100 per million BTUs at the TTF trading hub. They quickly receded. Now they're back down into the teens now, I think in $13 or $14. So 
a lot of that fertilizer capacity in Europe has come back online. I don't know the latest numbers. A lot of it has. I mean, I had a guy on my podcast, Chris something on the Power Hungry podcast last year from CRU Group talking about this. But people forget and conveniently easily forget that about 4 billion people in the world today are able to eat because of uh, synthetic fertilizer that is made from natural gas. So the Haber-Bosch process turns natural gas into synthetic ammonia that then becomes a base fertilizer for all kinds of things that, you know, farmers put on their fields that help them grow more food. So, you know, what we're, we saw in Sri Lanka with the meltdown of the Sri Lankan economy where they said, oh, we're going to go to organic farming. Well, suddenly you had food shortages. We're seeing food shortages now in Pakistan. Is that due to the fertilizer knock-on effects of fertilizer shortages that happened in Europe last summer? I don't know for sure. I, I can't make that direct line of sight to say, well, this is that d- direct knock-on effect. But it is clear that this romantic notion that we'll quit using hydrocarbons completely ignores the fact that our food systems depend on hydrocarbons. Our tractors use diesel fuel. Our fertilizer is based from is based on, on, on natural gas. We shut off our supplies of oil and gas. People will die of starvation. That I think is just clearly the case. And so it's a very dangerous, you know, I mentioned the romanticism of this about going back and, you know, we're going to use less. And um, I'm hoping to interview Bill McKibben. I'm supposed to talk to him on Monday for my podcast and he's promised to do it. We'll see. But he said, oh, we need to cut our hydrocarbon use by 20 fold. Well, who's going to take the hit there? So these all, you know, we, I think we forget, Chris, and it's one of the things that is really becoming one of the themes that I think about a lot in my work is we live in a system that's a network of network, of diesel fuel that provides the, the fuel for the mining trucks that produce the nickel, the copper. We produce, you know, the, the diesel or natural gas that, that is worked, that use, is used in, in fertilizer. We produce the transformers that are critical for electricity distribution that are dependent on a very specific type of specialty steel called grain-oriented steel, of which there's just one producer in the United States. So we have built over decades this very intricate economy that is very integrated and very interrelated. And we can't just pull out one part and say, oh, everything's going to be fine. We can't just say, oh, we're going to pour a ton of cash into this one part of the economy and not expect it to have knock-on effects in other parts of the economy. And that that's one of the joys of my job right now is just trying to talk through and explain to my readers and subscribers what how I see it and how these things are unfolding. Yeah, you talked about you know, we just talked about kind of if if, if we're going backwards. I, I did an episode, I believe it was 216 with Alex Epstein. He said something similar. He just said, when you stop producing the hydrocarbons, the machines stop working. The machines being the tractors, the the buildings, the facilities, the processing plants. And they don't just stop gradually over years and decades. They stop in a matter of weeks. And once the machines stop in our way of living, especially in America, goes backwards, you're back to lighting campfires and doing your best to survive. Basically, his his point was not only does famine and starvation kick in, but pretty much world chaos kicks in almost overnight if the hydrocarbons stop flowing. Yeah, that's definitely the case. And you know, it's interesting to see how the Biden administration has changed. And I'm not a partisan. I don't, you know, I'm 
not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I'm disgusted, mm -hmm. right? But <laughs> I like that. I'm in that camp too. <laughs> you're welcome to it. The disgusted party. It's, uh, the enrollment is open to everyone. <laughs> and I think a lot of voters are disgusted and they always vote, well, he's the least worst or she's the least worst, right? So I'll, I'll pick that person. But I think what it's interesting to see how the Biden administration now lately has been trying to, as I see it, tack to the middle, right? Why else would he approve the Willow Project in Alaska, right? Oil development in the United States, which I'm fully in favor of. If we're going to produce oil and gas, produce it here by God. Better to do it here than somewhere else. But you've also seen a kind of a change in, in rhetoric from Jennifer Granholm and other, you know, the, the Secretary of Energy. So uh, maybe they're just looking ahead at the midterms and saying, oh, we, 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 you know, we can't be these, you know, viewed as these radical leftists. Instead, we've got to act more as centrists. So, you know, maybe there is hope. And I had a, did an interview with a guy that will air the podcast pretty soon, Jim Murchie. And he said, you know, for all this talk about political dysfunction and, and there is political dysfunction, we're still in an incredibly enviable position. And I, I totally agree with that, that for the myriad flaws in the United States, the myriad problems we have with high levels of structural unemployment. Now, unemployment levels are very high, right? We've got a lot of, we have labor shortages in the US. You know, we have endemic poverty in many areas of the country. We have homeless problems. We have massive problems with opioid addiction and, and deaths from uh, opioids. But the US is still in an incredibly enviable position, both in, when you think about demographics, geography, uh, energy availability, the rule of law, you know, the best universities in the world. I mean, you know, the six, when I haven't looked these numbers, six or seven of the top 10, you know, 20 of the top 25 universities in the world are here in the United States. We have incredible advantages. But what concerns me is that we are passing so many policies, particularly on the energy and power side that are eroding our advantages. And we're doing it without much conscious consideration of what the knock-on effects are. Is that because you think leaders are trying to erode our advantages or does it more tie back to this religion that they believe in? I, I tend to believe it's the latter. I think it's just, you know, we, we're led by lawyers, you know, <laughs> like it or not. And why are our politicians lawyers? Well, they couldn't do the math to get into engineering school, right? So <laughs> we elect them, we have lawyers that dominate our political process. So they are swayed by polls and they're swayed by what sounds good. They don't know enough about engineering and physics to say, oh, that's a bad idea. And they're also being swayed by, let's be clear, the money. And there's a massive, massive amount of money behind these NGOs. I, I published a piece about the dark money behind the gas bans and the billionaires behind the gas bans. You know, people say, you know, the left continually says, oh, you know, the American Petroleum Institute and the natural gas lobby, they have so much money and so much influence. Baloney. Chris, it's just the biggest whopper of all time. You take the top 25 anti-hydrocarbon and anti-nuclear groups in the United States, they have, and they're operating on annual budgets of about four and a half billion dollars. Their revenues are 4x on an annual basis, four times what's being raised by and spent by the pro-hydrocarbon slash pro-nuclear groups. And that includes the think tanks like, you know, ClearPath or maybe American Enterprise Institute, although they're really not very active. But then, as I said, American Petroleum Institute, uh, American Gas Association, I compiled the list. I mean, it's not even close. The anti-hydrocarbon, anti-nuclear climate NGOs have so much money. It's only, you know, it's, and I'm the only one that I know of, I'm not bragging here, but there's been reporting on this and putting the numbers to it. And it's, it's staggering the amount of influence and cash that they have. 
All right, I'm going to leave you with a loaded question that we can bring this home with. But if we, well, maybe two, I'll give you a quick one. If the world moves on a pendulum and the pendulum's been going towards the NGOs and kind of that religion, is there anything that shows you that the pendulum might be swinging back the other direction? Could we be sitting here 10 years from now and the pro-fossil fuel group is now the, the largest donor or raiser of money and has the influence or are we still swinging out towards the NGO model? Oh, I think the, there's just no doubt that the climate NGOs, the anti-hydrocarbon, anti-nuclear camp has the advantage and that advantage is going to continue. I'll, I'll cite one specific example, which I've been uh, started to write about. In his, in his letter to shareholders this week, Jamie Dimon, the CEO of JP Morgan said, we need to, we may need, he said something to evoke imminent domain so we can build wind and solar projects faster. Well, here's the head of a bank that is worth $375 billion saying we need to effectively steal the land of rural landowners so we can build more wind and solar. And why would JP Morgan say that the head of JP Morgan say that? Because he's, he has a tax equity finance business that's worth tens of billions of dollars. So here we have the prospect then of the government in bed with corporations and big banks to expropriate land that doesn't belong to them so they can build more wind and solar, which will not cause climate change, will, which will not cure climate change, but which will provide profits for big banks and big companies such as NextEra Energy, Mid-American Energy, which is a subsidiary of Berkshire Hathaway, Invenergy, Apex Clean Energy, which is a subsidiary of Ares Management Corporation. These are very big businesses that are now in bed and want to be even further in bed with government, and they want to take land that doesn't belong to them so they can build more wind and solar projects because that's where the money is. So I don't think this has run out yet, and I fear it will get worse before it gets better. Okay, and then the last question. If you, <laughs> I went all Jimmy Swaggart there on you. Know, like, I, I, I love it. <laughs> It's about the money. It's always about the money, Chris. It's follow the money. And it, it's not about climate change. It's never been about climate change. It has been about the bucks. Who's getting the money? Whose who's interests are getting are getting subverted? You know, I've been all over the country. I was in Michigan last week talking with a group of rural landowners who are fighting these projects, solar projects in particular in southern Michigan. In fact, Apex Clean Energy. And they're saying, what are these people doing? Why are they coming into our neighborhoods? We don't want, you know, square miles of solar panels in our neighborhoods. We don't want 605 foot high wind turbines in our neighborhoods. Tell them to go somewhere else. I'm like, yeah, you can. But remember, they are being driven by vast amounts of subsidies and money. And they, they want to take your property because if they don't, they don't make any money. Interesting. If you had to leave us with like a couple of not policies, but just thoughts on what America could do better from your perspective. And, and we'll, we'll leave it on that note. Or what are a few things that the average American could understand to think about going forward? Things that could make put us back on a, a path to being maybe not more powerful, but more efficient and using energy the right way and headed back in the right direction. What, what could we be doing? Well, first, subscribe to me on Substack, robertbrice.substack.com. Boom, baby. That? <laughs> That'll save the world right Robert there. Robertbrice.substack.com. Well, I'll be serious, Chris, and I think it's, a, it's an important question. It's one that I, you know, I've written six books. I've made a documentary. I'm making another documentary. I have a podcast. I'm, do, you know, I'm on TikTok. I do all these things because I'm motivated by the desire to help people understand energy and power. And one of the reasons why we have 
so little good policy is that people, the general public and voters and policymakers are scientifically illiterate and innumerate. They don't understand the basis of physics. They don't understand what power density is, energy density. And because they don't understand it, they'll believe anything. And so a lot of my work is trying to help people understand, well, what is the scale of our energy system? How big is it? How hard is it? To, and how often does it change? Why are we still using coal? Why are the way, why are things the way they are? So if I were to encourage people in, in any direction, it would be become more literate about these issues. I've, I've written my fourth book, Power Hungry. It's kind of a primer on these issues. I, you know, I even go in on a quick vignette, Chris, I go into meetings with oil and gas executives and I met, I spoke to utility executives and in these meetings, I'll, I'll talk about, I'll present numbers in SI units and exajoules, right? Which is the common unit. And, and I'll ask how many of you know what an exajoule is in a room full of energy experts and they're in the energy not one, maybe two hands go up. And then I start shaking my finger. What are you doing? You need to know these numbers. So not only do they, I mean, so I, I make that as a little, you know, side note, but it's important for people to understand those numbers and to understand the scale of our energy and power systems, because if you don't, then you'll believe anything. And so those are the things that I, you know, I would encourage people to do. Understand the physics here, understand what power density is understand what energy density is. It's not an accident we use gasoline. We do it because, because it's an incredible energy density. If oil didn't exist, we'd have to invent it. So that would be my, you know, my quest or my request would be people uh, dig into this and, and, and work at understanding it because it's not easy to understand. It's not difficult, but it requires some commitment. Robert, thank you so much for your time today. This was a fascinating conversation. It was great, Chris. Glad to be with you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. 